Cell is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products in the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and private sector. Why not register and join the webinar being held on the 24th of March on AI auto-contouring capabilities with Thera Panacea? And you can also catch up with OSL at the BIR conference on the 30th and 31st of March, as well as visiting our booth at Estro this year. As always, please do not hesitate to get in touch to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable account specialists, as and when required. We are all from a radiotherapy background and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and workflows of all of our products. Please go to our website at www.osl.uk.com or if you would like to speak to us, please call 01743 462 694. Hi, my name's Laura and I work at Convensys as a Partnerships Manager. Join us at the NHS Oncology Conference on the 6th of June 2023 in Manchester. We'll open the debate on how the NHS is planning to lean on new models of delivery and innovation to help manage the current treatment backlogs and improve outcomes on a national scale. All tickets are free for the NHS to attend. To register for your free ticket, visit convensis.co.uk. Hello everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 89. My name is Norman Joker Anderson and I'm joined by fellow host Joe McNamara. Hi everyone. So a big thank you to our last guests, Radjocational, so Steph and Tyler, uh, two driven and hardworking diagnostic students about to qualify with a passion for public health and social prescribing. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So we're very pleased to introduce our guest today. Amanda Webster, who will be discussing her PhD research in motion management strategies for radiotherapy and the young estro track. Hi, Amanda. Hi, both. So, Amanda, could you tell us a bit about your current role and how you got there? Um, yeah, no problem. Um, first off, just want to say thanks so much for having me on. It's a real honour. Um, so, what I'm up to, I am in a little bit of a complicated role. It's um, divided a lot into different um, sections. So 50% of my week, I am a clinical research and development specialist therapeutic radiographer. I'm based in UCLH Hospital in London, and I work in both protons and photons. The other 50% of my week, I am a Cancer Research UK Radnet City of London PhD student. Um, and that is with UCL, um, University College London. Um, All these titles just roll off the tongue, Amanda. They're so easy. And just to add further complication, I also maintain an advisory role with the National Radiotherapy Trials Quality Assurance Team. So that's the RTTQA group. And that's my very straightforward role in a nutshell. Do you only apply for jobs if they have really long titles? Yes, it's absolutely <laughs> necessary. The more complicated, the better. So, obviously that sounds incredible, but why therapeutic radiography? Um, I think that has to go back to a really good guidance counsellor that I had when I was in secondary school at home in Ireland. I was a little bit lost. I was like looking at optometry courses I was looking at engineering and I didn't know there was actually maybe somewhere in between where you could 
um, work with patience, which I think is what appealed to me about optometry. Um, but you could also do a lot of physics. Um, he landed um, into a meeting one day and said, here's radiotherapy. I knew nothing about it. I don't have a story, you know, that a family member went through radiotherapy. Um, my guidance counsellor handed the information to me and I was hooked straight away. Um, the balance of physics, but then also patient care, it had me instantly. And I've never looked back. That's great mentoring. Um, I think everyone should have a guidance counsellor like that. I know Jo is like that to all of her students. To do any one of your roles, you'd have had to do further education as well. Can you talk us through kind of your pathway from qualifying to moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I trained at home in Ireland with Trinity College Dublin. It's a four-year degree at home. When I qualified, I knew I wanted to experience new opportunities, um, see radiotherapy on a broader scale, so I moved to the UK. I worked in various different centres throughout the UK, and as I was upskilling, you know, becoming more senior in my roles, um, getting more competencies, getting in involved in more initiatives, I started my um, master's and that was again back with the wonderful gang of therapeutic radiographers in Trinity College Dublin. Alongside that the timings kind of aligned so I was working on my master's um, but I also started working for the RTTQA group and working with RTTQA really opened my world to trials and research. I knew I wanted to get into trials and research, but being in this group really enabled it. So in my master dissertation, I um, utilized trial data from the RADAR adaptive bladder trial. And that's what I completed my master dissertation on. And what I started to do then, I started to think about my profile. I, I felt a little bit more confident. You know, I had the masters under my belt. I've been working as a trial contact for the quality assurance team. And I was like, okay, you can do this. So I started presenting, putting myself out there. And to be honest, I was shamelessly putting myself forward for things. You know, I started emailing universities saying, this is who I am. These are my skills. Are you interested in having a presentation on trials? You know, I had no shame. I just went for it. Then I started to follow what was coming out. So I kept an eye on special interest groups that were in radiotherapy. So um, I've been really lucky. I have been on a special interest group with the um, BIR. I've been on trial management groups, been on CTRAD. And this I just kept building up and up upon. Um, I started presenting more, publishing, and then I got a role as the research and development lead at Guys and St. Thomas's Hospital. Um, I had a fab time there, but then what happened was I saw the advert for the role I'm in now. And I was having such a good time being a research and development lead, but I really, really knew I wanted to do my own research 
and I knew that doing a PhD would enable this. So I went for the interview. I obviously had to present to the team at UCLH and UCL my skills, what I had done previously. And I feel really lucky to say that I'm now in this post almost two years. So that's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. I love that. I didn't do much. I just, just followed this really simple, easy pathway. Amanda, you talk really passionately about research where does that stem from? Um, it's hard to explain it. I think during my time in Trinity, it's really a research active um, university. And I was really, really lucky in my undergraduate that they exposed us to research. And it was like the best light bulb moment ever, you know? I was that nerd who loved doing their undergraduate dissertation. I was like, this is really fun. And I, and I realized that that's actually maybe not how everyone feels about it. Um, and I was like, oh, right. So liking this is like something different. And um, I kind of tried to kind of check in with that. And... Um, you know, I got involved, as I said, put myself in kind of roles where I would have to be exposed to even more kind of research, be involved in national and international trials. And I just knew it was for me. Um, it's a funny one. It's, it's a lonely life like research, but I really, really enjoy it. And so what are you, what are you doing now as part of your PhD? Um, so as I mentioned, I am funded by the um, Cancer Research UK and it's a RADnet funded PhD. Um, the provisional title for my research is Motion Mitigation in Abdominal Cancers. So I'll try and talk us through it a little bit. So thinking first about abdominal cancers. So these are patients who have tumors in their liver. It could be primary or metastatic disease. These could be pancreatic patients, lower esophageal patients, stomach patients, patients with adrenal cancer, cancer abdominal metastasis, etc. I could go on, you know, we could get into the realms of saying patients with stomach cancers, etc. And I don't mean to handpick a few, but you know, um, we could be here all day getting into the nitty gritty, but hopefully I've given a fair overview of the main cancers that are within abdominal cancers. My research is focused on a subset of patients. So I'm looking at patients who've been diagnosed with liver cancers, pancreatic tumors, or lower esophageal tumors. Um, but of course, some of the findings that we hopefully get from my work can be, um, you know, utilized in other sites too. too. And why are we looking into these, um, you know, these cancers? Um, they are a tumor site that we have and we can successfully treat with radiotherapy, but we really want to optimize this further. At the moment, these tumors are so prone to movement from breathing, stomach filling, and what we wanna try and do is minimize this motion or account for this motion. There have been a lot of different approaches to do this so far, 
and I have the joys of doing a systematic review at the moment to bring this all together. So we've got different approaches. We may ask a patient to hold their breath. We may put a belt on them that squeezes their abdominal area. Um, there's various different approaches. So hopefully my systematic review will be able to present um, a broad overview of this. Then I need to think about where I am in my center and what we have. So in UCLH, we've been utilizing abdominal compression since early 2020. And a part of my research has been reviewing the patients we have treated to date. But of course, another part is our future developments. And I think you can kind of divide these into two areas. Of course, there's like technical developments that we want to look at, and that can include, you know, um, adding additional imaging so that we can better understand this motion. So, you know, for example, we have our belt in UCLH and what we're trying to do is take an MRI while the patient is wearing the belt. So we have these technical developments that we want to introduce, but we also want to get the patient voice. And what we've, I've really found from my systematic review so far is there is little to no patient voice in all of this. And as I'm sure you can imagine, forcing a patient into a kind of breath hold, whether it's inhale or exhale, or putting, you know, the belt on that compresses their abdominal region or any of the approaches we use, you really have to apply these approaches on the patient. And it's actually kind of scary when I think about how little there's out there in the research at the moment, you know, with regards to patient questionnaires, surveys, interviews. So another part of my research will be making sure we include the patient voice moving forward as we continue to um, optimize how we deliver radiotherapy to these patients. Why do you think it is that the patient voice hasn't been incorporated in the research? A great tough question. Um, a lot of the research is quite technical and I can understand initially why the focus was technical. Because for a long time, you know, these were quite advanced techniques for a center to adopt. You know, we have the um, we had the Sabre rollout program, which we've had in NHS England. And not every center, you know, could deliver these types of treatments. Obviously, that is changing. And I think maybe what maybe happened to be kind to those researchers who have come before myself there probably, I can imagine, was a massive focus on simply trying to even get these pieces of equipment utilized in radiotherapy. You know, was it technically feasible to utilize them? I also have to wonder, a fair bit of the research previously was, you know, quite focused on quantitative methods. Was it perhaps undertaken by our fantastic colleagues, our medical physics colleagues, our the clinicians. And now you can see there's a wave of therapeutic radiographers who are also getting a lot more involved in this research. But naturally, as therapeutic radiographers, we are seeing these patients as well. So it, it could be a number of factors, as I said, technically trying to introduce it. I understand that was the focus. Um, but also 
I am obviously a little bit biased towards therapeutic radiographers and saying we look out for these things because we see our patients every day. But that's just speculation. <laughs> I would also add that you know, years gone by when changes in immobilisation and software came through, you were very much focused on disease response. You know, you're trying to be as accurate as you possibly can to improve prognosis. So much of the research is done around the software, the technique, you know, the kind of dosimetry behind it. And then as a therapeutic radiographer, you are managing that patient. And you know that when you're trying to position a patient or you're trying to support them with a specific technique, you kind of live and breathe what they're having to go through. And I think that generally makes us more appreciative of qualitative research. Um, And it's amazing to see that we're doing so much more around PPI work now. Yeah, we literally do live and breathe it, Joe, right? You know, if we, like, for example, um, if we're forcing our patient into a given breath hold and they have to hold for 20 seconds, we find ourselves in the control room holding as well, right? Um, And that's naturally going to feed into, you know, then the kind of research we want to undertake because we are eat, sleeping and breathing it. So Amanda, you're part of something called Young Estro. What is it? Uh, Yeah, so I think if it's okay, I'll do a little backtrack first of what Estro is. So Estro is the European Society for Radiation Oncology. It's a multidisciplinary um, society, meaning it includes therapeutic radiographers. um, And I'll probably be a little bit guilty of abbreviating that to RTTs when I talk about us in the European world. Um, But it also includes our medical physics colleagues, our colleagues in radiobiology, and doctors who are specializing in radiotherapy. So that is our overarching society. And then within that, we have Yestro, or Young Estro, as it's previously been known. And Yestro represents the young radiotherapy community within Europe. And again, it does include our four specialities, clinicians, physicists, radiobiologists, RTTs. It's probably one of the newer committees. I think there, it was clear that there was a gap that actually many ESTRO members um, are young, but not many members on committees initiatives are actually young. So the ESTRO committee came about. It has the responsibility to ensure that the voices of the next generation of researchers and practitioners are heard. And um, it, it really is there to kind of catapult, um, you know, early career radiation oncology professionals into the wider interdisciplinary organization. Um, it's very transparent, Yestro. We have core values that we share on our uh, website and I think I've left a link to that um, which you guys I think have below on the episode details but anyway going into our core values like what are we striving for so we want to create value for our stakeholders so that's the young community we want to be approachable and open for input 
we act transparently, we strive for diversity, equity and inclusion, and we are future focused. We have many initiatives that address these, but I'll just cover a few of them. So for me, I've been on the committee for just over one year and some stuff that I've got up and running with some of um, my peers in the Yestro team are we've set up an opinion panel. So this is a little survey that radiation oncology professionals can complete. It roughly happens every three to four times a year. And what you can do is you can voice your opinion you know, you can put for, answer our questions and then put forward ideas, suggestions. You can put yourself forward for initiatives such as writing for our newsletter um, and shout out to our newsletter, even if you're not on the opinion panel, but you are an early career um, professional. Please reach out to us. We love to hear about what people are up to, what initiatives they're doing. Um, what else does the YESTRO committee do? Well, we specifically have a young track at the annual ESTRO Congress. I was really lucky to be able to organise our young track for 2023. Our theme um, is to focus on a radiotherapy department of the future. So we consider stuff like future-proofing access to radiotherapy, resource optimization caring for ourselves, but also caring for our patients and opportunities to improve patient care. We have some fun things as well. So we have uh, speed dating and please, if anyone is attending Estro, please come and join us. It might sound a little bit daunting, but everyone is so welcoming and it's such a great opportunity to meet other professionals. Last year, when I was doing speed dating, I exchanged emails with some people and we've, you know, since kept in touch, helped each other out, read each other's documents, stuff like that. And really, it's been a really good thing to do. We have our Young Researcher Award. We have a quiz. And yes, it does have a prize. And we are going to have a social event at the end of the day on Monday the 15th. And we are also organising a Yestro dinner. So all of these details can be found on our website. But you can also find other initiatives that we do. You can see our papers that we've done on DEI, so diversity, equity and inclusion. You can see our papers we've done on burnout. There's loads of stuff up on our website. And please just reach out if you are an early career professional and want to get involved in any of the initiatives. So Amanda, what's the upper age limit? What classes you as a young estro? Because <laughs> we do have to clarify, I consider myself really young, but I already know I'm out of demographic. <laughs> yep. So disclaimer, I didn't make these rules and I don't know where they come from. It is 40 years old. We do make considerations for, you know, if you've been off with, um, you know, maybe unfortunately you've had to have, take a few years off due to being unwell or, you know, if you've been off for maternity leave. So you can essentially minus these years. Um, but there's also a space for, you know, maybe radiation oncology professionals who've come to the career and it's their second career. So there definitely is a space. So we say 40 years of age and or 10 years post-qualification. Now this can be quite different 
four different professionals. So we often see it in Europe that our medical physics colleagues, um, it's quite common for them to complete a PhD, which is obviously quite a lengthy procedure. So 10 years post PhD could be something like 45 for them. So I keep trying to wave the RTT flag and highlight to estro colleagues that, you know, for some RTTs, our bachelors will be the degree we complete and we may not do any further qualifications, meaning we could, you know, graduate at 22 and then on that logic, we are out of young astro by 32. So we have these guidelines. However, you know, we are very open to discussing with each individual, you know, if they, if we can make it work, you know, as I said, looking at different things of, when was when did they finish their qualification? Uh, what's their profession? Were they out for sick leave, maternity leave, etc.? So if you're on the cusp, I'd always say do reach out. <laughs> Sorry, Joe. A very um, no, it's absolutely fine. Answer. And technically, um, I did have a year out for maternity, so yeah, maybe I'm just still in. There you go. Just, just. Join us, RadChat, at Oncology Professional Care, an award-winning event for the whole oncology community, returning to the Excel Centre in London on 23rd to 24th May 2023, a multidisciplinary and multi-professional event which breaks people out of their professional silos by delivering free CPD certified education for all healthcare professionals working in oncology. Joe and I are excited to have steered and influenced the programme as part of the advisory board with support from key organisations such as NHS England, Macmillan Cancer Support, Bopper and more. There are over 130 plus sessions of carefully curated content focused on the whole patient pathway across five dedicated theatres. Keynote speakers, living with and beyond cancer, early diagnosis and screening, clinical excellence in surgery and therapeutics and advanced cancer treatments. There are many reasons to attend, such as discovering cutting edge developments in cancer treatment, understanding how genomics and personalised medicine can become part of the bigger treatment options, make sense of an evolving policy landscape direct from the National Cancer Team at NHS England with keynote address from Dame Callie Palmer. Gain insight into what's happening in early diagnosis and screening to improve early detection of cancers with sessions on fit tests, HPV vaccination and targeted lung health checks. There are some specific focused clinical sessions for 2023 on head and neck cancers, blood cancers, breast cancer and bowel cancer. One of our favourite aspects from RadChat is that you'll be able to hear inspiring patient stories along with their real life experiences of living with and beyond cancer. If that isn't enough, you can join the hands-on hub and enjoy interactive, practical sessions to bolster your technical skills, as well as visiting the pod box with us here at RadChat. Visit the event website to find out more, and we look forward to seeing you on the 23rd, 24th of May, 2023 at London Excel Centre. So Amanda, in terms of um, kind of the, the work that you do and being a clinical academic, you know, how has this role um manifested and how do you find it supports the work within both the radiotherapy department and also the protein Uh, so a lot of these roles are quite new and even to myself joe this idea of being a clinical academic is quite new it's something i'm trying to figure out is clinical academic a title or is it a pathway i'm embarking on right now i could definitely looking at the society of radiographers guidance on clinical academics 
I can definitely say I feel like I tick a lot of the boxes to be considered one. Um, but as I said at the start of um, this session, <laughs> I don't have the title clinical academic. Maybe that would be a lot easier um, and I wouldn't have to say my really long role. It's too short for you. You can't have clinical academic. <laughs> <laughs> but thinking about, I guess, well, I think like as we've said so far, a lot of focus on radiotherapy in the past few years is we've had this massive influx right of technology new approaches new techniques and we kind of mentioned this in one of the previous questions you know when you put me on the spot and asked about the patient perspective and like the landscape of radiotherapy is just ever-changing and what I feel is really important for our patients is that all members of the multidisciplinary team are involved in their research and their development and ensuring that their techniques are um, up to date. So naturally, having a therapeutic radiographer in an R&D post lends well to this, but I think it goes beyond our patients as well. I think what's really nice in our department is what we are able to do as R&D radiographers is we're able to support our staff as well. So, you know, if I have staff undertaking their first master's module, their dissertation, or have great ideas where they want to introduce something new for our patients, as an R&D radiographer, I feel like I can be there in the background helping them develop their recipe. I like to think of research as a recipe you follow um, and I feel like if you have a good recipe you can do a good piece of work and that's where we can help staff you know we can help them with the dreaded methodology how am I going to do this work how am I going to analyze it what kind of timeline am I going to have and we can help them guide them through that procedure and then I guess the final thing about having R&D rads is I think it's really good for therapeutic radiographers. I think it's really good as an allied health professional. You know, often cancer MDGs can be dominated by one or two staff groups. And if we have research and development radiographers or clinical academics, whatever we call them, or, you know, whatever lingo we're using, um, having these therapeutic radiographers who are really skilled in research means that we can have a seat at the table, you know? We can not just kind of give a little input or, you know, maybe review a document in an email. We can actually be in the big meetings, voicing our opinions, advocating for staff, advocating for patients, and... Um, also, like what I can do is I can bring other staff in on it. So I think they're really, really beneficial roles. Um, I've seen so many more posts like this come out in the past few years. And I really, really hope that it's a, a route that um, we can continue to offer um, therapeutic radiographers. It's an interesting perspective because the role of a clinical academic is quite established in for clinicians or for nurses mm -hmm. or for physios mm -hmm. and it seems that a lot of other allied health professionals I don't know we sort of mimic or try and copy the nursing world or the medical world but we haven't quite found our identity yet 
because you've got consultant practice which incorporates research or has to you have to work towards a PhD now in the UK then you've got advanced clinical practitioner where one of the pillars has to have research then you've got advanced practice that has to have research and then you've got a band seven treatment radiographer who doesn't necessarily have to have research but if you think if we're all trying to merge towards advanced practice um you know it's it's just interesting I just feel like we haven't quite got there yet no, we haven't. I think it's, it's, I agree with you, Neman. We've seen so much amazing progress with our advanced practice, our consultant radiographers, um, and that pathway is getting better and better defined. As I said, there is Society of Radiographer Guidance for Clinical Academics, and it's a really, really useful document. And it's not just for high level, you know, it's not just for therapeutic radiographers who are at PhD level, you know, it's relevant if you're in a research or trials role, I would definitely recommend having a look at it. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you again, it's, we're not quite there yet, are we? Working with obviously your European colleagues in Estro, what's it like abroad? Good question. So if anything, as much as I've said, we're not quite there with our clinical academic roles in the UK. Overall, the role of a therapeutic radiographer or RTT, I would say is quite advanced in the UK. We have a lot of um, training um, in some in some European countries, they may not do the bachelors and we, everyone has that, that's standard now for our therapeutic radiographers, but so much so we see master's students, right? We see advanced practice, PhD students. So I would say compared to our European colleagues, I would say we're actually paving the way. Um, I get a lot of emails and correspondence from RTTs in different countries asking me about my role. How did I get there? Or what have I done? Um, so I, I think actually we're, we're doing some really, really good work. And I hope, you know, trying to pave the way further in clinical academic posts um, will not just benefit us here in the UK, it will benefit wider um, but I think, yeah, in Europe, that's the feeling I get. But of course, then we have, you know, I think in Canada and Australia, there's, you know, good reports of some kind of advanced practice for therapeutic radiographers. But my network doesn't quite go that far. <laughs> uh, I mean, you talked about obviously undergraduate level doing a dissertation. For any students listening, I mean, not everyone likes research. Not everyone enjoys doing their dissertation like you did. Um, and you know it's, it's just not for some people how do we guide them to maybe work towards still being evidence-based practitioners um i think try and make research as easy as you can as i i've actually already said it's like a recipe you need to follow i think we go into research thinking we need to change absolutely everything but there are so many things that can be easy in research you know, if you pick up a paper and you see something was done on head and neck patients in a centre in Dublin and you think to yourself, oh, we could do that for our patients here in London. There is no reason why you have to change anything in that because you've got a different cohort of patients. 
And I think it's about easing people in and making it more accessible. Um, I would say if it's not something you enjoy, don't pick something overly complicated. And pick a topic you're interested in. Pick a patient cohort you're interested in. Because if it's something you're really, really struggling with, at least what you can do is when you do have to do the research, in the back of your mind you can think, but I really, really love treating prostate patients, for example, and this will be really worthwhile. But I don't think there's a magic answer. <laughs> I definitely think I was one of those people that really struggled with research, which working in academia is kind of unheard of because everyone working <laughs> in academia is like research driven. Um, but I really found co-production and co-creation and working alongside really experienced researchers really beneficial. And I would imagine, Amanda, having someone like you in your role within a department gives people the confidence and inspiration to think, actually, I could get involved in that. Um, do you find that you've kind of taken people along with you as you've done research within the department? Yeah, definitely. And that's probably in my 50% of my week, that's R&D. That's like my favorite part of it. And Joe, I would go beyond saying I've taken them along. Once, you know, you have a few sessions together and really get the recipe down and people start to get a lot more comfortable with things I don't take them along they run with it and it's been amazing to see some of the staff um, in my department who maybe have never done um, an evaluation or development work and to be able to give them that support like be their almost be like their cheerleader um, it's the best part of my R&D week you know saying you've got this you know um, I'm always here if you need to run anything by me and disclaimer um, my department are really lucky it's not just myself um, we have two more research and development radiographers in post so we've got actually a team that um, staff can go to and I think the proof is in the pudding you know in the past year or so we've seen more output from our therapeutic radiographers. And what do I mean by output? I mean, submitting their abstracts to conferences, writing their first paper. Um, and what's been really nice is, as one of the rads described it, therapeutic radiographers described it um, the other day, she's like, I've had you guys to hold my hand um, throughout the process. So it's a really, really fulfilling thing to do. And it makes research worth it actually because you're like well if I can be a good researcher and help therapeutic radiographers um that's one of the best things to see their success it's so so humbling what's what's something that you've learned that's really surprised you from being involved in research is there like a a light bulb moment or something pinnacle that has happened throughout your research career that you think oh my gosh I never envisaged that or I wouldn't have thought that uh yeah actually and it's not just happened once it happens regularly I found that a lot of people working in research are just the most genuine helpful people I I'll never forget you know maybe going into my first few trials meetings and looking at the documents 
and seeing the names of the professionals involved with the trial and thinking, oh my God, I cannot go into this meeting. You know, I have nothing to say, nothing to add. These people are absolute experts in their field. But actually, I came out of these meetings thinking, wow, these are the most helpful and caring people. A lot of researchers, what you'll find is research is lonely. It's a lot of stress. You do a lot of it in your own time. You're often trying, you know, spending a lot of time trying to get funding. And no matter what any researcher has on their plate, I'll they will always make time for you if you have a question, if you need some help. And it hasn't just happened once, it happens regularly and continues to happen. And I'm just amazed every time it happens. It's an amazing community to be in. With CRUK Radnet as well, obviously there's a lot of Radnet groups across the country. And obviously UCLH has the Therapeutic Radiographer School as well. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk us through both of those? Um, yeah. So um, as you said, Nemen, we have your Radnet groups um, or centres um, throughout the UK. So I'm within the City of London Radnet group. And it's a funny one. I kind of work a little bit in isolation when I'm in my little radneck group in the city of London. There are other PhD students, but a lot of them are lab-based and we don't cross over. Um, what I do have though in Radnet, and you had one of the amazing radiographers on your podcast, I have the likes of Marae Daly, who's also looking at her and um, doing her PhD and also um, looking at a similar patient cohort the, than I, as, as I do, because um, I'm sure you can imagine from our, both of our sessions that we still have a long way to go in it. So what, what I do have in Radnet is that kind of network. You know, I've got other therapeutic radiographers who are doing their Radnet PhDs. Um, so yeah, it's been a funny one. We're still trying to navigate it. We've got a little apto rad group, as we call ourselves. Um, and then there's also wider Radnet initiatives that we are trying to get more therapeutic radiographers involved in. So we're chipping away at it. So it's not clearly defined. But the second question you asked is the Therapeutic Radiographer School at UCL. And that's definitely more clearly defined. So I'm really lucky to be attending the Therapeutic Radiographer PhD School. And I'm also so lucky that two of my colleagues are also on a PhD pathway. And... We have each other, we have a little um, group where we can get together, we can look out for each other, how is our well-being, how are you managing this, have you got your most recent paper out, do you need me to check it, Um, they're just a fantastic little group, we're small but a really good little group to have. That peer support is really really helpful, especially when you're struggling to get motivated Obviously, with a split role, how do you find, you know, when you have a PhD day and suddenly clinical time or something else tries to creep in, 
How do you manage that? Um, so my most recent um, approach is if somebody wants to speak with me on a PhD day is to offer them an eight o'clock or a 5.30 Teams call. Um, but this is new. What I try and do is I try and set uh, boundaries. So I try and take my PhD either at home or in the university. So the clinical department can't see me. I put an out of office on and say I'm not contactable but obviously I have teams up so if something really urgent needs to come you know people can get in touch with me and they can phone my phone if they really need to if I feel like clinical hours are eating into my PhD time I will track this um I believe I am the envy of a lot of my colleagues because I have a very perfectly color coordinated calendar so that really really helps though because what that does is it may I can visually see if clinical time is eating up into my research time and then I just be flexible you know maybe the following week I say no I'm you know actually I have to take an extra half a day back because I didn't get to do my PhD time and the other top tip I got as well is if I have to be clinical on a PhD day because I actually need to be in the department I might need to see a patient or be on a machine wear something that indicates I'm on my PhD day so you might be seeing me but I'm actually a PhD student or if I want to show that I'm more clinical I'll pop my uniform on and say hey you know I'm still a therapeutic radiographer I've got a uniform so it's just balancing it all up um, and hopefully I do an okay job of it. <laughs> I'm intrigued what a PhD student wears. Do you have like a blazer with elbow pads on? <laughs> um, I wish I could say I was that stylish um, and cool, but usually it's um, just smart workwear. <laughs> I would definitely play on this and come in fancy dress. Just come, come dress as a dinosaur and see what people would do. <laughs> like it's my PhD look. <laughs> So Amanda, you did confess to us before we started that you are a super fan of Rad Chat. So you know what comes next as we come towards the end of the podcast. So it's so top tips for anyone that's listening. Yeah, I just have one. Um, and I've been really excited for this, as you know, as a super fan. I think it's really important that no matter what role you are in, whether you're like myself in research, whether you're on the treatment unit every day or in education, whatever role it is, I think it's so important to always remember there is a person at the core of what you're doing. I get really, really frustrated when I hear research being reported and I hear patients are described as, in inverted commas, prostates instead of prostate patients. Or, you know, if I'm on the treatment unit and I hear the student, you know, there is a person at the core of everything we're doing. And I think remembering this is just so important. It can help motivate you when, for example, if you're in a role like mine and research is feeling hard, lonely, and it's a bit of a slog because it can make you empathize. It can make you think, oh, wait, these are not in inverted commas prostates. These are prostate patients. I think it can also help you when you're in other roles. So, you know, if you are training someone 
and you're really struggling and you're thinking why are they not getting it remember they're human you know they just maybe need an extra helping hand and I think it just leads us to being kinder um, and it promotes a better environment to work in and a better place for us our patients and our peers to be that's lovely thank you and I completely agree I've been called the student many times and I still dislike it um Thank you so much for championing research and obviously therapeutic radiographer slash RTT. Um, and thank you for everyone for listening to Rad Chat. So your hosts today have been Namajo Kanderson and Joe McNamara. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, please consider the reflective questions posted, along with the links to resources and literature we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google Form link to the podcast. So our next guest feature will be Leanne Patrick who will be discussing her role as a nurse specialist for gender-based violence. Thank you everyone for listening and take care. UKIA Conference is back June 2023 in Liverpool for three days and is fully refreshed to respond to feedback from delegates to reflect the world we're living in today. Prices are lower than ever and start at £75 to access the full Congress and all content. They've changed the programme to focus on specialists for the generalist and top tips content rather than highly specialised topics from previous Congresses. There are more sessions on service optimisation, education and workforce. Something that we love is research and it's at the heart of the programme. There's more proffered papers, sessions to present your work, expert sessions on refining research proposals and power pitches, and a dedicated research hub. If all of that isn't enough, there are themed hubs in the exhibition on service delivery, clinical case studies and innovation in action, along with more hands-on and technical workshops. Industry partners have added valuable education content on their stands too. You can also check out CPD outside of the programme in Case of the Day activities and view posters. There are streams aimed specifically at masterclasses for trainees, making UKIO the place to come for value for money exam prep, along with sessions throughout the programme aimed at students. The programme is available to view at www.ukio.org.uk, where you can also register, and there are more than 100 plus sessions to choose from. And don't forget to come and check us out in our Rad Chat pod box. See you on the 5th to the 7th of June 2023 at ACC in Liverpool.